in God's word to Exodus in the first chapter. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Exodus 1, we'll take it up where we left off last week. We take it up in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply in a happen in the event of war, that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, and in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. When the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shepharah, and the other was named Pua. And he said, When you do the duties of the midwife for the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. For they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mightily. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Thus far the word of God. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, as we come in our worship to hear your word uh, preached, proclaimed, we pray that you would open our minds to understand it. We ask, Lord, that you would bless by the Holy Spirit, for apart from your work in our midst, we would only have the actions of men. Father, we desire to hear Christ from the scriptures, and so blessed by your spirit. Use your vessel that you've appointed in this place at this time, to hold forth the glories of Christ. And Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart of understanding. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you children may not be able to follow what I'm about to say, but certainly parents, governments come and governments go. Some are favorable governments. Some are even kind toward the people of God. Others are indifferent. And during many periods of history, governments have been harsh and oppressed 
all those who call upon the name of the Lord. In our text today, we have read of a change in government. Now there arose a new king over Egypt. With this change of leadership, everything changed for Israel. This new Pharaoh had no regard for Joseph and his countrymen. Suddenly Egypt ceased to be a place of prosperity. It became a place of persecution, much like we might see even in our day. As we heard last week, God had greatly increased the number of the descendants of Jacob. But they were not in the land that God had promised to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You find that Jacob had prophesied to his sons there in the closing chapter of Genesis, Genesis 15, uh, verse 24. He prophesied that God would visit them and bring them up out of the land of Egypt and into the land which he had promised to Abraham and his descendants. This is the promise that God made to Jacob's grandfather, to Abraham. And the time to go was approaching. In Israel needed to be disturbed from the comforts of the land where they dwelt. Sort of like the mother bird does with the nest. I think some of you might have seen with the eagles. They create a nest, they lay their eggs, they hatch, they raise their young. But there's a point where the parents begin to pull the nest apart, particularly the comfortable bits, and leave the harsh bits. They push them out. You see something of that happen here in the text. God wanted them his people, to long for the land of promise. That they should long to dwell where he had promised that they would dwell. So suffering, listen to this, suffering was a tool of a sovereign God that he used to stir up his people and to make them long for God to fulfill his promises to them. Christian, it is possible for us to become comfortable prospering, at ease in the world, and to lose sight of the promises of Jesus that he has gone on to prepare a place for us in his Father's house, as we heard in John 14. God uses suffering in the lives of his people also to bring about spiritual growth. The furnace of suffering burns out the dross, but it also should make us long for heaven, our eternal home. This is not our home sisters and brothers. We're pilgrims here. Our home is in heaven, and it is there that we will enter into the saints' everlasting rest. So that's one reason that they're suffering. The other is because of the great battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Yes, we're back to Genesis 3. We live after the cross. When this battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent has been completed, Satan has bruised Christ's heel, but Christ has crushed Satan's head. In Exodus, they dwell well below that conflict being ended, and yet the conflict was raging on. The events that took place about 1,200 years before the crucifixion, here the serpent is seeking to destroy the woman and her seed. That's what we see unfolding in the passage we've just read. Now the woman is dwelling in Egypt, in a nation that is given over to the worship of Satan. They are servants of the serpent. We live 2,000 years after Christ's triumph over sin, Satan, death, and the grave. The persecution and suffering are still very much a part of our experience. 
The church is one throughout history. And this story in Exodus is our story. It's part of church history. And indeed, all the faithful in Israel who look to the coming one by faith were and are our sisters and brothers. The church is one. From this story, we can learn about the great contest between good and evil. But as the people of God, we can learn how to remain faithful to Christ, even when sorely pressed. We use four main headings, suffering and slavery, persecuted yet prospering, then from slavery to slaughter. It's not a word you hear in sermons too often. And then finally, we'll consider the God who is there. So begin with suffering and slavery. Joseph was a savior. His name means savior. He was a savior of many people during the seven years of extreme famine because he had interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh and they knew what to expect and Pharaoh appointed him to make preparations and saw that he was a wise man who had abilities of administration. So Joseph led the nation through prosperity and he saved Egypt from certain ruin but indeed also that area around it. But most particularly, God was looking after the descendants of Abraham. Joseph was sent down ahead of them to preserve the seed of the woman, particularly in the tribe of Judah. But time has passed, and a new king, as the scripture says, who did not know Joseph, has arisen. Now, Moses is not saying that the king doesn't know anything about Joseph. That's too remarkable a period of history for Egypt for him to know nothing about Joseph. What he's saying is he didn't know or respect him. He did not uh, reverence him and, and honor him for what he has accomplished, and therefore he didn't care about his people. He felt no obligation to the people of Joseph, the people from whom he had come, you know, Pharaoh, who was the Pharaoh when Joseph's family came, he honored them and he provided for them. He gave them the best of the land. He respected them. He wanted Joseph's brothers to look after his own livestock. This new Pharaoh is not like that. As we saw last week, Israel has increased and multiplied exceedingly mighty. They have grown so that this new king sees how it is. With his people and these people, we read in verse 9, and he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and happen in the event of war, that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. He's fearful. He's fearful of these people. He sees them as a clear and present danger. The immigrant population is very numerous. He says, if there's a war, these Israelites might join in with our foes and and fight against us, and we would end up being defeated. So the king sets sets a plan in motion. Verse 11, we're told that taskmasters are set over the Israelites to afflict them with burdens. The children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are put to force labor, labor, slavery. God told Abraham that this was going to happen. Before they even went down, when Abraham did not have even a son, the son of promise, that God said that his children would serve as slaves in Egypt. So what's Israel doing? You can say they're doing the heavy lifting in the land. 
They're doing hard labor. We hear it, bricks and mortar and building cities. They're working in agriculture in the fields. All the hard labor is put upon them. Verse 11, we're told they built whole cities. These are supply cities or storehouse cities where the, the Pharaoh, the king, uh, could place the abundance of Egypt. And indeed, they had an abundance because of Joseph. But they were not destroyed during the time of the famine. What we see here is they built Pithom, meaning the house of autumn, an Egyptian god. The ancient text speaks of this, this place of, of Pithom, and I'm quoting from this ancient Egyptian text. His majesty has built himself a castle, the name of which is Great of Victories. You see, there's this exalting of the Pharaoh. Uh, the name he gives upon it is to exalt himself. He is, as many kings do, raising himself up against God, even oppressing the people of God. They also built Ramses, a, a royal residence for the Pharaohs. And these were great cities, and they were built by Israel's children with their bare hands and their strong backs and the sweat of their brow and the blazing sun. Verse 13 says that the Egyptians made Israel serve with rigor, that is, forced labor. We can conclude that the whip of the foreman, their taskmasters, was at their backs. The rod was used to drive them into work harder and harder, and severe was their affliction. The seed of the serpent was desperately seeking to destroy the seed of the woman. The conditions were brutal and harsh. Ruined the health of men. Shortened the days was the goal, to shorten their days, to decrease, to decrease their numbers, to break their will, to leave them without hope. That they should not hope in any promises made to their fathers of long ago, but that they would respect and, and revere the Pharaoh as God over them all. Before we move to our second point, let's consider some applications. The brutality, the sinful humanity is breathtaking. That one man could treat another man so wickedly, to force another man to do his will against that man's will, even unto death. It is in slavery that we see the depravity of mankind. When men treat those who are image bearers of God, with so much contempt. It's as they would strike God if they could. This underscores the extremes to which Satan will go, using sinful men to do great evil in the world. Satan cares nothing about life. Remember, he came only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He's the father of lies. And what did Jesus say of him? He's been a murderer from the beginning. And here we see the seed of the serpent being murderous in the land of Egypt. Satan cares nothing about life, but we surely see this when the, with the wicked oppression of unborn children. In this case, it's children, male children, upon the point of birth, such oppression that they would be murdered. Satan delights with perverse destruction of innocent babies. He delights in it, in our day, and in every land where it happens. Let us never wonder if the battle is still raging on. 
Satan is defeated at the cross, and yet he is still determined to steal, kill, and destroy as much as he can while he yet may. Consider this even for our own selves. We've talked of others. Let us never become partners with Satan. Don't oppress others. Boys and girls, boys and girls, children, do not oppress your brother or your sister. For when you oppress your brother and sister and seek to dominate them and have your will over them, you're a party with Satan. Have nothing to do with that. Flee to Christ and pray that he would help you to be tender, kind, and gentle, seeking the betterment of others to the glory of God. Jesus would have us, would set us free from sin, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Secondly, let us consider persecuted yet prospering. Verse 12 we read, but, so Pharaoh's sent on an agenda. He wants to sorely oppress. He wants to break and destroy these people. But the more they, he and his people, afflicted him, the more they multiplied and grew. Do you not see that's back to seven, where God is blessed? They're being very fruitful. They're increasing abundantly, multiplying and growing exceedingly mightily. The land was filled with them. In verse 12, what Pharaoh's doing is not working. The more he oppressed them, the more they multiplied. The more they increased, the more they grew. What was the result? And they were in dread of the children of Israel. Here he is, this mighty king with a mighty nation. He's oppressing, and it comes to naught. The very thing he's trying to accomplish doesn't happen. He wants to put them down. He wants to suppress them and destroy them, and they're flourishing because of God's promise, because of God's faithfulness. Israel is the church of the Old Testament. And Abraham's children, God has promised, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. The blows of the taskmaster on Israel were as those striking against God. These are his people. Ultimately, then, this is spiritual conflict, as all conflicts are. All conflicts are ultimately spiritual conflicts. It is war between the forces of darkness and the forces of the kingdom of light. Pharaoh had no respect for God and his promises to Abraham. It is though Pharaoh, like Satan, would exalt himself and say, yes, you promised these things, if he knew of them, probably did. He says, I'm going to overrule that. I'm going to suppress and oppress and put down your people. So Pharaoh is ultimately resisting God's plan for the children of Abraham. That's who he's in opposition against. He sees them as a threat, but his war ultimately is against God. Thus he's serving Satan as the seed of the serpent and trying to destroy the seed of the woman. And woe be unto any man who would raise himself up against the Almighty. God had promised they would come out, and Joseph believed the promise of God that they would go up out of the land and return to the land and to promise. He had even taken his father, Jacob, up and buried him with a great entourage from Egypt. There was honor and respect at that time. And so when Joseph is dying, he makes the children of Israel promise that they will carry up his bones and bury them in the land that God promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. 
See the faith and the confidence. You read the book of Joshua carefully. And near the end, as the land's conquered, you hear that they had brought Joseph's bones. And they buried them in the land as had been promised. It was a promise that was kept by generations unto generations. They fulfilled the promise of their fathers. The children kept their promises. This was the promise that God had made. And yet here is Pharaoh seeking to thwart the will of God. Now the Pharaohs, all the Pharaohs claimed that they were gods, that they were the sons of Re, the sun god. And so this struggle between Egypt and Israel, it's not political. Oh, it's been framed at, you know, unless they become too many and drive out the land and everything. But ultimately it's a threat to Pharaoh. He says, I'm God. As my fathers were God. Isn't that ridiculous? My father who's dead was a God, but he's dead. And yet here's this one exalting himself against the God who is, period. And yet this is what he was doing. He saw himself powerful enough to do that. He was not going to let Israel go into the wilderness. We can find in just a few chapters that Moses comes and says, God has sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me. The Pharaoh's determined, no, they're going to serve me. And we can make no mistake about it. God always wins such conflicts. He always triumphs. Pharaoh makes it harder and harder then. Verse 12, they're afflicted. The people multiply. Verse 13, so the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. We've heard that before. With rigor, their oppression's great. They want more and more, demanding more and more of them. They made their lives bitter. And there's some of the specific with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Hard Hard, hard, callous-forming, muscle-aching, back-breaking, sun-blistering labor. This is what they were forced to do. And yet they prospered. No matter how hard Pharaoh and his taskmasters pushed, God prospered Israel. We see that. That's church history. We had tyrants raise up. They tried to put down the church, and the church grows was it um, Turretin, one of the early church fathers, said, you know, more persecution, you know, the more growth. The, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's happening in our day where the church is so oppressed. The world looks on and sees, what is it about these people? What, what is it that they have that, that they're able to uh, rejoice even in the midst of their afflictions and suffering? I remember hearing the story of a woman in China. This is a couple decades ago. And she was in prison, and her taskmaster every day took delight in beating her. She wasn't broken. She flourished in the joy of the Lord. She was in Christ, and, and she, as uh, we see with the apostles, counted a, a joy to be counted worthy to suffer for the Lord. So day after day, week after week, he comes, he beats her, he beats her, and then one day he's just broken. He breaks down in tears. He says, how can it be that no matter how harsh I treat you, you continue to look to your God and you have joy in him. How can that be? And she tells him the gospel and he's converted. And within days, he too is in prison for the sake of Christ, the blood of the martyrs, the seed of the church. This is what this king is finding out. Satan tries to destroy him, but God 
Friends, our God is greater than the nations. He is greater than Satan. He prevails. He triumphs. His will and his will alone comes to pass. So we look at this pattern of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And we cast our eye back to the close of Genesis. What did Joseph's brothers do when they were apart from Christ, when they were living according to the flesh and their sin? They oppressed Joseph. And they sold him. They were determined to murder him, but they didn't. They sold him as a slave to the Ishmaelites. He was carried down into Egypt. Joseph said, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. By sending me ahead, many lives have been saved. Again, some application before we move on. As the clouds of persecution thicken, and grow dark and darker in our day. Let us remember the book of Exodus. God is greater than our oppressors. And God uses persecution for his glory and for our good. Do we not have much dross in our lives? Do we not need to be in the furnace of afflictions for so God you'd use that to burn off that which is still unseemly within us. God is at work in all these things for our glory, our, his glory and our good. Those who serve Satan, they think they can destroy us. But indeed, what men mean for evil in our day, God means it for good for you and for I. God is at work. By being united to Jesus Christ, every affliction is one that Jesus feels. Remember the words that Jesus spoke to Saul when he was yet, I'm sorry, to Saul before he was Paul. He said, why do you persecute me? Saul was after Christians. He was persecuting the seed of the woman. He was persecuting the people of God. He says, why do you persecute me? Is it not hard to kick against the goads? Those are sharp, uncomfortable sticks, children. Every blow of the persecutor on God's people is a blow against Christ. And in this, he sanctifies that suffering for our growth and grace. Just as when the heat of the furnace is applied to the silver, it is refined, even so the heat of suffering results in spiritual growth in the Christian who looks to Christ in the midst of the suffering. For this reason, Jesus tells us, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Yes, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. For so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward on earth. No, in heaven. Lay up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt, where thieves do not break in and steal. It is often the case that things get worse before they get better. Our ancient foe is filled with cruel hate. But remember what Luther goes on to say in him: One little word shall fell him. We come thirdly then from slavery to slaughter. Things get worse. Trying to destroy Israel with slavery hasn't working. So the king turns to something much worse Genocide, infanticide, the slaughter of male children. Look at verse 13. 
So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. They made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service was made with them was to serve them, serve them with bigger rigor. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, and he said, uh, he spoke to, spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Sapphira, or Sapira, and the name of the other Pua. And he said, when you do the duties of the midwife for the Hebrew women, and you see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Wow. Now, think of the parallel. These male children that would be born into the Israelites were inconvenient for Pharaoh. Now, in one sense, you could say, but doesn't he not need laborers? Well, his concern was more about an army. So kill the male children who grow up to be warriors who might fight against us and let the girls live. We'll use them in labor ourselves. These two women, Shafira and Pua, these are Hebrew names. And since Israel was increasing so fast, it is right that we should conclude that two midwives cannot serve all the Israelite women. I think a proper understanding is these were like the, the foremen or the overseers for all the midwives. They were in charge. There's was, was the structure of Egyptian society, and it would not be surprising that this was the case here. So he calls these two uh, leaders of the midwives to them and says, this is what you're to do. Have your midwives kill the male children. The king believed that he was so powerful and so terrifying that he could force Hebrew midwives to murder Hebrew male children. Does he think he's God? He does. He thinks he has authority over life and death. They would order such a thing. We see this pattern in history, do we not? The nation of China in my lifetime under communism had displayed such a policy, one child policy, one family, one child, forced abortions, killing babies. Even today they use the Uyghur people for forced organ harvesting and then they let them die. There's no regard for life. You see that's under Hitler and Stalin and Lenin and Pol Pot. We could go on and on and on. And it's true of Islam as well. No regard for life. Period. Here is a hallmark of the forces that serve Satan. Those who are engaged in the work of the seed of the serpent, they have no regard for life. They too have joined in to only kill, steal, and destroy. So this king of Egypt issues this order, and he sets himself up against God. For God is the Lord of giver and life. He appoints our days. He numbers them. He says when it's time to go. This Pharaoh is audacious. What was God's command? In the garden, Adam and Eve, and indeed on down through the nations to, the, to these very days, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And Pharaoh says, I stand in opposition to that creation commandment from the living God who rules over all. He's in trouble. Just understand that. He's in trouble. You don't set yourself in opposition to God and prevail. As we will see, Egypt is judged by God. 
and indeed mighty and heavy will be the hand of God upon the nation of Egypt. That's what we'll see unfold, amongst other things, in the book of the Exodus. The whole nation will suffer, even, ultimately, to all the firstborn males in every household. Some application. It's a very important one. Do not think that you can set yourself in opposition against God and prevail. Do not think that you can cast in with evil men. The book of Proverbs opens, warning the son. Son, if young men come to you and say, hey, let us go. We'll rape, pillie, and plunder, and we'll have all this booty. We'll share it amongst yourselves. Just don't listen to them. You're, you're throwing in an opposition to God and all that is holy. Do not think that you can be in opposition against God and prevail. He is God. Your very life depends upon his command to sustain you with every breath and every heartbeat. But with this note on a national level, an international level, think of all the nations, the nation where we live, in other Western nations, we have rebelled against God's commandment to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Sixty plus million babies in a shorter time frame than my life have been murdered in this land. The secret place of the womb where who is at work? God is at work knitting together a life fearfully and wonderfully made and an audacious wicked man would snatch that life out and destroy it. Do not think that this nation in which we dwell in will go unpunished. Perhaps we already see clear signs that we are under judgment. We will face the judgment of God. Why? As Paul says in Romans 1, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Who's the number one idol worshipped in our day in, in, in our, our land? The self. We've seen the self exalted to such audacity that, that people say, oh, I know I look like a man and my DNA is a man, but I'm a woman. That is the self exalting himself against the creator because a man is a man because God made him a man and a woman is a woman because God made him a woman. Paul says, they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. This is a judgment for rejecting God. For even their women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men. The rise of homosexuality in our land is a sign of the judgment of God upon our land. But these Hebrew midwives were courageous and they refused the king's commandment. Why? They feared God. They feared God and they stood against this man who thought he was terrible and fearsome, that he should exert his will over them. But they feared God. Look at verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. Blessed be God. 
who enable and equip these women to do thusly. And so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing? Save the male children alive. Imagine it was a terrifying meeting. But they feared God more than man. That's exactly how we're to live our lives. The fear of God, not the fear of man. And the midwives said to the Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and they give birth before the midwives come. These leaders of the midwives who Pharaoh was interacting with, they they knew the law of God. Though it's not been written on the stone tablets on Sinai yet, the law of God is written on their hearts as it is on all hearts. You shall not murder. They knew that. This commandment and fear of God, they knew to, to kill those male children would be murder and a grievous sin. Now, it's at this point in the text, a, a great controversy is raged over, not about the wickedness of the king, but as to whether the midwives lied. And if they lied, what do we make of that? Our Westminster Standards, right before in the larger catechism, has the exposition of all the Ten Commandments, teaches us that it is never right to break one commandment to keep another commandment. It is never right to break one commandment in order to keep another. And too often, sinners will point at this text right here in front of us to excuse their own lying. There's no excuse for lying. Lying is a sin. Always. And in Proverbs, God says, there are six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. Notice what it is. Twice in here. A proud look. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. A lot of these apply to this king. Feet that are swift to run to evil. And a false witness who speaks lies. And one who shows discord among the brethren. Lying. Is a sin. Phil Graham Riken comments thus: The words of the midwife, as um, is not a lie, but a glorious confession of faith. Their lie, if we can even consider it a lie, was such a whopper that they can hardly be accused of trying to deceive anyone. Follow me here. Think about it. What? What if? Or if what Sapphira and Prua had said was literally true, then why would the Hebrews even need midwives? This is one of the places where understanding the Bible requires a sense of humor. Speaking tongue-in-cheek, the midwives are making sport of Pharaoh by suggesting that the Hebrew women are hardier than the Egyptians. No doubt that's true. And what they said was more of a joke than a lie. Thus, Pharaoh was mocked as well as deceived. I think that's a helpful interpretation. You ever tell a tall tale? Some of you children heard me tell my tall tale. It's such a tall, preposterous thing. You know I'm not telling the truth. It's a tall tale. It's not to be taken as the truth. It's something of what is happening here. I think that's a very helpful explanation. But if that's not the case, then they're lying. Is there anything we do that is not tainted with sin? Everything we do has sin in it. And, and if indeed these women you know, weren't telling a tall tale and poking and mocking Pharaoh, if they were straight out lying, it's inconsistent with their fear of God. It would suggest that they feared Pharaoh. But let's just assume they have. They were lying. God's grace is sufficient. God honors them. The text goes on to say, Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew mightily. And so it was because the midwives feared God. Notice it doesn't say because they lied. 
because they feared God that he provided households for them. I don't think we need to make this about whether they lied or not. But what we do understand, lying is always wrong. What did Jesus say about Satan? He's speaking to the religious leaders that they serve Satan, the father of lies. And if we're lying, we, we're again, we're cooperating with the seed of the serpent. God is about truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We are to be truth tellers. There are times when the answer, when faced with a difficult ethical situation, is just button your lip and say nothing rather than to lie. I remember discussing this in seminary, in ethics class. You know, three or four people run by you, a mother with three children, and they, they run off to hide that way, and you know that. A little while later, here comes a man with a gun. He says, where do they go? I've come to destroy them. You don't need to tell him anything. You don't need to help him. We'd probably be inclined to say that went that way. That would be a lie. Some argue that, well, he doesn't, he's not owed the truth. Some people say Pharaoh's not owed the truth. But now we're starting to trouble with, can we break one commandment to keep the other? A lie is a lie. But God's grace is sufficient. If we do lie, but we don't lie just so that God's grace may abound to sinners either. I think that what uh, Phil Graham Reichen has set out is true that this is a tall tale. They're, they're poking fun at this Pharaoh because they fear God. The Hebrew women aren't like the Egyptian women who, who need all kinds of help in the delivery. They're hardy women. Well, figure they're working hard. These are strong men. I got a friend of mine served as a missionary in Haiti for a while. That's what he described the Haitian women would be working in the field. Came time to deliver. They go to the side of the field, squat, have their baby, cut off the umbilical cord, put it in a pouch on their back, and go back to work. No epidurals, no gas. They're hardy. This, this isn't a preposterous thing that these women are saying. But God counted these midwives as faithful. They were sinners. There's no doubt these women are sinners. God counted them as faithful. They feared him. And he blessed them. He blessed them with households. He gave them husbands and children. God is so much greater than all our sin. And as we see at the close of Genesis, some of you remember this. Our God is so great that sin, every sin, all sins are taken into account in his plan. If God has to refigure his plans every time we sin, what kind of God is he? He is no God at all. The decrees of God include sin, but he is not the author of sin, and he abhors sin. But he is such a great God, as Joseph said to his fathers, brothers, you meant it for evil but God meant it for good. That's the sovereign reign of God. That's the God of providence governing all his creatures, all their actions to bring about his glorious purposes. And we saw that at the close of Genesis and we see it in the opening of Exodus. It's the continuation of the same story. And so what Joseph said to his brothers, does that not apply right here? You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. As it is this day to save many people alive. Pharaoh meant it for evil. What the women did, they meant for good. It was God's plan for good, and they saved many people alive. All those male children. As we close out, I want to consider the God who is there. I, I thought about making this a question. I'll ask it a question. Where was God when all this was happening? But I made it a positive. The God who is there. 
simply put, as always, he is always there. He is in it all and through it all and above it all. He's the God of providence. Verse 12, we see God there. But the more they afflicted him, the more they multiplied and grew. Where does life come from? God. Is not God the God who opens the womb and closes the womb? Yes, God was there. He gave the increase. This was God's doing, and he's sustaining his people. Verse 17, here is God. You see it in the midwives. They knew of God. They knew of their God, and they feared him. They feared his commandments, and he sustained them in their obedience. There we find God. And then we see him in verse 20 and 21. Here is God. Therefore God dwelt, dealt with well with the midwives. God is blessing them. Let us not miss miss how these women lived, or that these women live. Pharaoh did not put them to death. He's such a capricious man. You'll kill all the male children. One of these women, he could just take them out, execute them. But in God's providence, it didn't happen. God was there, preserving and protecting them, sustaining and keeping them. And that's the confidence that we should have whenever we're faced with persecution, suffering, and affliction. God is able to sustain us. That was the hope of Hadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. O King Nebuchadnezzar, be certain of this. Our God will deliver us out of your hand. He's able to do it out of this fire. But even if you throw us in the fire, we perish. He is able to deliver us out of your hand. We will be with the Lord. And that's how we should live our lives. God is there. Look at the very end of 21. We see the one, the one who's doing these things. Because the midwives feared God. He, God, provided. He is the God who provides. And many have been those who have found that in the way. So we conclude. We have heard the brothers, uh, what Joseph said to his brothers throughout this sermon. Joseph teaches us all that God is in the details. God does govern all his creatures and all their actions. Do you believe this? Do you live your life according to this truth? Are you resting in the certainty of this promise? God governs all his creatures and promises. We saw this in the book of John. Everything in that week of Christ's passion, when his hour had come, unfolded precisely according to God's plan. What Judas did, what Peter did, what the religious leaders did, so that they even brought him by the house of Annas on the way to be crucified. He went before the proper high priest that the sacrifice could be approved. On and on, all those glorious things we saw. God is in the details. Sisters and brothers, nothing will happen in your life today, this week, in your life, but that God has decreed it. And that's a cause for rest and for peace. As I said earlier, not a squirrel is hit, but God has decreed it. Not an acorn falls, but the God has decreed it. No nation rises unless God makes it so, and every nation ceases from the face of the earth according to God's decree. Let this truth be the foundation of rock on which you stand and live your life. And who is that one who governs all his creatures and all their actions? The Lord Jesus Christ. As the Son of God who came to earth, 
conquered sin, death, and the grave, conquered and crushed the serpent's head. God has set him on high, has given him a name that is above every name, and he has committed unto him the governance of all the affairs of all creation, that the God-man, Jesus Christ, rules and reigns. He is our rock and our redeemer, and we live our lives on him. Amen? Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this old, old book of things that happened many, many years ago. And yet we have found here treasures, truth, balm, encouragement. Yes, there are hard things. There are lessons for the nations. There are lessons for us. Father, we thank you that we see Christ in the scriptures wherever we may look. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.